Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, and welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. Today we have a special guest. We're going to have some great recipes, a chat with a listener, which is something you can potentially do if you'd like to. Call 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. Leave us a message about what you'd like to talk about, and we'll get back to you. So it's a great show. Stay tuned. I'll be with you in a minute. The first recipe we're going to do today is simplest roast chicken, and there are a couple reasons for that. One is, it's among the most requested recipes in my repertoire, in anyone's. Everyone says, well, I just can't seem to get a plain roast chicken down right. This will do it. The other is, you can do it while you're taking a bath. Now, I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but we'll get to that in a minute. This is a recipe I came up with while I was doing the minimalist column at the Times, and I've never bettered it. I don't know that anyone else has. We've tweaked it a little bit over the years, but the technique of preheating a cast iron skillet or any heavy skillet or roasting pan in the oven before you add the chicken gives you the benefit of cooking the thighs quickly enough so that they're done at the same time as the breast. So you avoid both undercooked thighs and overcooked breast. That's the key to a good roast chicken. And here it is. Start by putting a heavy cast iron skillet, or if you have cast steel, the heaviest skillet you have, and one that'll fit a whole chicken, in the oven in the lower third and heat the oven to 450 degrees. While that's happening, rub the chicken with some oil, salt, and pepper, Put some sprigs of herb inside the cavity if you have them, some rosemary or tarragon or thyme, a few cloves of garlic or half an onion, even half a lemon is good, anything like that. When the oven is really hot, give it five minutes after it tells you that it's reached temperature so that you make sure the pan is hot. Very carefully put the chicken breast up in the skillet. You can also scatter some garlic and thyme, whatever, around the bird. And then go take your bath. Go for a walk. Whatever it is you want to do, roast it undisturbed for 40 minutes and then check for doneness. An instant read thermometer put in the thickest part of the thigh should read between 155 and 165 Fahrenheit. If it's 154, I would take it out. If it's 150, I'd leave it in for a couple more minutes. If it's 170, something went wrong. So take it out, again, very carefully, 
oven-proof, heat-proof gloves are great for this operation. Tip the pan to let the juices flow from the chicken's cavity into the pan. And if they're red, you might roast it for another couple of minutes. But if that internal temperature is over 155, you're good. Transfer the chicken to a platter. Let it rest for a few minutes, no more than 10. Probably five is more like it. And if you like, uh, you can pour the pan juices into a measuring cup, pour off a little of the fat or spoon off a little of the fat, and then reheat the juices. You can even add a little butter to that and use that as a gravy. Carve and serve with those pan juices and maybe some more chopped herbs. Let me know how that goes. So this is a quote from today's guest. When I cook, I want to put everything in the oven, and then I want to take a bath for half an hour. And then when I get out of the tub, I want everything to be ready. As I said, that is a direct quote from today's guest. And if you're a fan, you've already guessed who he is. The one, the only, David Sedaris. David is hilarious, as you know, and yet somehow quite poised. He has a new book out this week called A Carnival of Snackery a collection from his diaries. And he, to my great pleasure, said yes when I asked him to chat with me. Since he was in New York, we actually got together in person, shocking, in a studio, just like the old days. And we had fun, as I hope you're able to tell. Here he is. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. It And it's fun to be in a studio. I do agree on that. I last saw you at Oberlin because my stepdaughter figure graduated from there. You told the priest joke, which is in a carnival of snackery. And well, that man rushed the stage. And then that guy rushed the yeah. stage. <laughs> they held him back, but he kept trying to get at me. You know, two people were holding him back, and he's like, I'll get you. And it was interesting because you're at Oberlin, right? And so you're expecting to be condemned from something. the left. <laughs> yeah, from the left. And instead, I got it from the one right-wing person, whoever, the father of the one Republican who ever attended <laughs> Oberlin College. Wasn't he yell? I think he was a priest or something. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get to jokes. Well, actually, since there are a number of jokes in the book, and this is one of them, maybe you could tell us this joke, but also I would like to know what your favorite jokes are in the book. Okay. Well, I, when I gave the, the commencement address, it's hard for me. Have you ever done one? No. No, I've never done a commencement address. They're a good assignment, I think, but it's a tough assignment at the same time. So, you know, you want to be hopeful and you don't want to make it all about yourself. And I gave one at Princeton a few years ago. And just before I began, they said, you know, you're going to be in the chapel and the acoustics aren't very good. So you need to speak slowly. And you have to write something for that pace. I mean, you can't just take what you've got and slow it down. And then most of the audience was outside the chapel, and I couldn't see or hear them, so I really had no idea what was going on. But at Oberlin, I thought, well, I'll just give some advice. You know, I know a few things. And so I started keeping a list of, okay, what am I pretty certain of? And one thing is you have to be really careful about scented candles. You know, there's really only two kinds worth having. And another thing I'm pretty sure about is always have a joke tucked away in your back pocket. And so I said, here's one. Cop stops a car. A couple of priests are riding in. He says, I'm looking for two child molesters. The priests think for a moment. We'll do it, they say. So I told that joke. As good a two-line joke as there is. 
<laughs> and an angry man rushed the stage. He called me an asshole is what he did. But I've been called worse, and I still think it was a pretty good joke. A joke that I heard recently, okay, like Jaime and Herschel are walking down the street, and they pass a Baptist church, and it says $500 to anyone willing to convert. And Jaime says to Herschel, how about it? And Herschel says, my mother is so devout, she would never, ever stand for a thing like that. While later they pass $1,000 to convert. Jaime says to Herschel, what about now? Herschel said, my mother, I told you, I can't. A year and a half later, they walk by the church, $4,000 to convert to Christianity. Jaime says to Herschel, okay, what about now? And Herschel says, you know, my mother died a few months ago, and I'm really in debt. I'm going to do it. And he goes into the church, and he comes out 10 minutes later, and Jaime says, so did you get the $4,000? And Herschel says, it's always about money with you people, isn't it? I know that joke. I love that joke. Have you always been a repository of jokes? You just, like, yeah. pick them up? But what I like about that joke is there's a certain kind of person, like when I'm on stage, right, when I'm doing an event, and they hear a certain word, and then it's over for them, right? So they're like, that's an anti-Semitic joke. No, that's a joke about anti-Semitism. But so often the audience will get snagged on something like that. They don't even hear what comes after it. But and I'm not one of, the, one of those who, you know, wants to dissect jokes. And I'm just repeating jokes that I heard. You know, if I knew who to credit, I would credit that person. I mean, I'm not a joke writer, but I'm definitely a joke appreciator. But it's hard to when, if you said to me, here's a joke, I'm going to put my face into that rictus, and chances are I'm going to laugh before the punchline because I just want to please you with my laughter. So I like it when someone surprises you with a joke. Like this woman came up at a book signing and she said, my mother died recently and it was a really, it was very difficult for me. And uh, a neighbor said, I'd like to say a word at her funeral, if you don't mind. And I said, of course. And he got up in front of everyone and he said, plethora. And I went to him later and I said, thank you so much. That means a lot. I like it when somebody sneaks a joke by you. Right. So there are a couple of those in the book. I was walking here today. I walked here from my apartment, and I was at 5th, and I think I was at 49th Street, and this guy tried to sell me a coffin. And I said, that's the last thing I need. But does, do you think that funny things happen around you? Like, no one's ever tried to sell me a coffin. Oh, no, that's a joke. Get it? <laughs> Oh, I see. It's a joke. It's the last thing I need, a coffin. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it didn't happen. No. But funny things do seem to happen to you. I mean, there are, or is it just the way you observe things, do you think? I don't know what it is. I usually go out after midnight and walk five miles, right? Because I have this Fitbit and I like to wake up with five miles under my belt, right? I like to get between 15 and 20 miles a day, but I like to wake up with five miles under my belt. So, I go out at midnight, and I live on the Upper East Side, so usually I can walk five miles at night and pass no one on the sidewalk, especially during the pandemic. But about a week ago, I'm turning off of Park onto 72nd Street, and there's this woman, and she said, I'm just smoking this joint, but it wasn't a joint. I don't know what she was smoking, but I didn't smell marijuana. Anyway, you want a date, baby? And then she just attaches herself to me, and she won't leave me alone. And then I made the mistake of saying, I'm gay. And she said, I'll fuck you up the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 
I'll turn you. And then I go to a building, any building, you know, with the doorman. And the doorman says, are you two together? And as I say, no, she says, yes. And it turned out she had been there five minutes earlier and tried to use the bathroom. So the doorman thinks that I just took pity on her. And I'm like, we'll see about that. I don't live there. And then the woman says, oh, I see. You came here because you want him, right? You want some of his dick. And I said, and the doorman said, what's going on? She said, of me, she said, he's gay. And the doorman said, you don't know that. Maybe he's a family man. And I'm thinking, why are we talking about this? And that kind of thing would never happen, like, to my boyfriend, Hugh. And I think it happens to me because I'm small. That's your theory? <laughs> happens to you because you're small? Yeah, I mean, if I were... T- I mean, the woman was my size, but it's the same thing with people, aggressive people on the street. They come to me. They'd go to me before they'd go to anybody else, especially now that I just went down four notches on my belt. This is from walking 20 miles a day. Actually, it's from eating Jello. Only Jello? Is that the— No, but whenever I'm hungry, I, I, I mean, I have meals— and then if I get hungry between meals, I reach for sugar-free Jello. It fills you right up. The weight just dropped. It just disappeared. You don't. Th- but it's not the twenty mile a day thing. Or have you been doing that forever? I've been doing that forever. Anyway, I think that things happen to me because I'm not on my phone. I don't usually carry it with me, and I don't text and do all that stuff. And so I'm available to make eye contact with people. I think that's part of it too. Well. If I could add to that, I mean, that makes total sense. But it sounds like you're on the street a lot, you live in cities, and you pay attention. Yeah. But even in the country, things happen to me. Yeah. (laughs) You've always been funny. You've always had a sense of humor. This is not something you cultivated, or were you a hilarious kid? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I have a very funny family. So if I compare myself to them, I'm just, you know, I'm nothing special. I mean, I'm funnier than my boyfriend. I mean, he has some really good qualities, but you would never call him funny. There's somebody who I know who just went into comedy at the age of, like, 62. And the thing is, like, no one had ever told him in his life that he was funny. I mean, that would be like becoming a model and no one said, oh, my God, you should be a model. Most of your books are autobiographical, but none is a straight memoir. I don't... No. Is that something that interests you? Is that something you might do at some point? I have a 12-page attention span, so I'm not interested in writing anything that's more than 12 pages long. I mean, every now and then I'll stray to like 13, but partly because I go on these tours and I read things out loud. I would never get on stage and read something that was 45 minutes long or an hour long. Nobody wants that. I prefer to read a number of shorter things. So if I read something and you're not into it, you know, give it 10 minutes and I'll read something else. Are there particularly scandalous diary entries that you've left out of Carnival of Snackery? No. I mean, I don't there are certain things I don't write about in my diary even. So I don't write about sex, but like at my age, I don't know how scandalous. I think the scandal would just be that I have it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a diary story for you and then I'll, which you might find amusing. And then we could talk about food a little bit. My friend Johnny, close friend for 50 years at this point, always kept a diary, 
always, started when he was a kid, handwritten. And I, we lived together for a while, and he would just, you know, he'd be at it every day. You'd see him, and he'd be doing it, spiral-bound notebooks or those old composition books with the fake marbling covers and journal after journal after journal after journal. And finally, he got paranoid that he was going to lose them or lose them in a fire or whatever, and he bought a lockbox, a metal lockbox that he could put them in. And he dutifully put everything in the lockbox, put the lockbox under the bed. Some number of weeks or months later, one of his kids had a party, and the lockbox got stolen. <laughs> That's the story. But it's true. Well, see, I worry because, I, you know, I sold my diaries, but I started keeping them on a computer in the year 2000. So I paid a number of people before I sold the diaries, to type them up. So I would have digital copies, right? Because right? right. with my diary, I write it on the computer, but every season I print it out on eight by nine and a half sheets of special paper, and then I bind it. And there are pictures in there and everything. So it's a real little, pro it's my hobby, I suppose. And so I made copies, but they couldn't be exact copies because, you know, the pictures that I put in my diary in, you know, 1979, I mean, I don't have access to those pictures anymore. You know, and it could be a little thing. It could be like a picture I ripped out of the Village Voice. Right. You know, maybe it was a picture in the Village Voice of, of like Sandra Bernhardt before she had really done anything. You know, she'd done one thing or whatever, and it was an article about her that I thought she was funny, and I put it in there, and she turned out to be big. But I just shipped those from England to New York because it seems to me like my house in England will catch on fire. And it seems really likely. I like if I were going to pick any house that would catch on fire, it would be that. So I moved them all here. So then I thought, that's what's going to happen. Now the New York apartment's going to catch on fire. That's just Jinxing it. Yeah. But you have digital copies, so that's good. Yeah. So it's, it's not the end of the world. And do you read them? Do you look at them? Yeah. Every now and then I'll pull one off the shelf and, you know, mainly look at the pictures. And it's, I can tell by the cover what happened, right? Like my dad just died. So I said to my boyfriend, Hugh, who can do anything with a brush, Right, He can copy any painting. He could forge if he wanted to, but he can copy anything. And he comes up with things, too. So I said, I want a diary cover that I can look at, and I'll know that's when my dad died. So I have four siblings, so there are five of us now, right? And then he painted five bells against a black background connected by a ribbon, and it's so perfect. Because sometimes I'll tell him what to do, but he's better if you just let him decide what it should be. You should let him design your book covers. <laughs> well, he has before, but the, he's not a designer. He's a painter. But he's painted so many of my book covers. I, I kind of like that he has a part in them because we've been together for 30 years, and so I'm 64. So in two years, I will have known him for half my life. And also, I'm just very lucky because when he dies, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, because it's not even like I can pay somebody to do what he does. They won't be as good. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Okay, I need to do my due diligence and talk about food before we run out of time. You mentioned you have four sibs and you write about your family. Your, your family is maybe even beloved and well-known to some extent. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ate growing up, who cooked, what you ate, that kind of stuff? Sure. We had six kids and my father is super cheap. I mean, super cheap. So he never trusted my mother to grocery shop. He clipped coupons and he would go to four stores. He'd go to two on Friday and two on Saturday, right? And we liked going with him just because, you know, just because it got us out of the house. But he would go to the grocery store. He would march into the back in the produce department and find whatever they're about to throw out. Mm, but he really was cheap. Yeah. And so all of the vegetables were limp, you know, like it would be a carrot, but it would just, if you held the green part, the other part would just droop down. Like I didn't even know that vegetables had texture until I left the house. Yeah. One thing that's interesting, like it wasn't, like no one was allowed to say, I only eat white food or that touch that. Like we weren't allowed to be those children. And so, you know, like my mother made this spaghetti casserole that I remember with cream cheese in it. You know, when you're like in first grade, you're fine with it. But what was interesting is my mom... Groceries changed, you know, in the 1980s. All of a sudden, sun-dried tomatoes appeared. Remember when sun-dried tomatoes, and everyone was like, oh, my God, sun-dried tomatoes, which actually, I don't like them. They're not that good. No, but in 1980, everyone was so excited about them. And I remember we went to my sister Gretchen's graduation from RISD, and we went to Il Forno, a restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island. And it was the first time I'd ever had northern Italian food, because we had, like, the Villa Capri in Raleigh, which was... You know, when I look back on it now, I mean, you know, the cutlets probably came already frozen and they were all the same size. And, you know, when you go to Italy, it's nothing like the Villa Capri. The Villa Capri gets its food off the back of the Cisco truck is how we put it usually. <laughs> <laughs> but when we were kids, you know, when I would go to the Villa Capri, like, oh my God, are you kidding? But the important thing I feel like... You know, when we became teenagers and it was like, okay, David, you're making dinner tonight, 
right? So we had the like the cookbook for children, you know, so I made my meat loaf in the shape of a wreath and I made my chicken cacciatore and but we all learned to cook that way and it would be our turn to make dinner. But I feel like the most important thing was that we ate dinner at the table every night. And my father, he would, he always ate dinner in his underpants, always. He came home from work <laughs> and he took his pants off as if they Boxer were like- Boxer shorts? No, briefs. Briefs. He took his pants <laughs> off until he went to work the next day. He just kind of wandered around in his underpants. and That was his idea of luxury. Someone would knock on the door and be like, oh, you know, trying to meet, beat dad to the door before he could open it. But so he would leave the table the second he could. But the rest of us would sit around the table for hours and hours and hours every night, you know. And when we got to be teenagers, it wasn't like we had dates. Nothing would pull you away from the table. And to me, I feel so fortunate to have grown up with that. You know, Hugh and I now, you know, every night we eat at the table, you know, with candles on the table and we don't eat in front of the TV. We don't eat standing up. I mean, often at book signings, I'll say to people, what did you have for dinner last night? It's appalling. You know what I mean? Oh, I just put some tuna on crackers and I ate over the sink. That's disgusting. I mean, I, maybe because I don't drink and I don't do drugs anymore, all I have to look forward to is dinner. And Hugh is an amazing cook. And he started off, he moved to Paris. His, he grew up in Africa. His dad was a diplomat. And so the meat was pretty sketchy, you know, in Somalia and the Congo and Ethiopia. So he was a vegetarian as a kid. And then he moved to Paris after college and got a job cooking for a family. And they wanted meat. So he learned to cook meat. And then he started eating meat again. But he's not the kind of cook where, you know, he takes the rice and then puts it into like a cat food can. And then so it's in a little mold and then there's things piled up on top of it. He's a basic, like he can really roast a chicken. And people are, it's like they never had chicken again when they come over to our house. And also he knows how to find the right chicken. You know, he's happy to spend four hours making dinner, but he's not a snob about it, right? Because when I cook, I want to put everything in the oven and then I want to take a bath for half an hour. And when I get out of the tub, I want everything to be ready. We could do that. It happens. You answered a lot of questions I was going to ask you. So thank you for anticipating that. I just want to have some idea of your mother cooking with these sort of shitty ingredients that your father would shop for. Would he say, you know, here's what you've got. You've got limp carrots and limp celery. You've got some meat that might go bad tomorrow. You And she would be like, fine, I'll do what I can with it. She did what she could. But again, it was, you know, Spanish rice we would have. I mean, stuff that kids like, chipped beef on toast. You know, we'd have a roast on Sunday, but it was like, eat it quick because it expired at noon. Is there anything in particular that you love to eat other than Hugh's cooking or anything in particular that you can't stand? Well, it was a real surprise to, you know, I wanted to quit smoking. And so I thought, I'll just move to Tokyo because you can't smoke on the street in Tokyo. You have to go to a special smoking station, and they're not always easy to find. And it's not like you just smoke on the street anyway, because people there follow the rules. I mean, the first time I went there, I was still smoking, and I left the train station, and I lit a cigarette, and I looked around me. It seems like there were hundreds of thousands of people in my sight, and not a one of them was smoking. And so I put the cigarette out, 
And then I didn't see any butts on the ground and I didn't see any trash cans. So that's why I always wear cuffed trousers, you know, because you can put your cigarette butts into the trouser, under the cuff of your pants until you found a trash can. And it was such a surprise to me. I guess I had just a really, you know, my notion of Japanese food was pretty basic. You know, I thought, oh, they eat sushi and they eat tempura. And it was interesting to be there long enough and meet Japanese people and go out with Japanese people. And I remember I was out with my friend Akira and his wife. Our lunch came in a box with many compartments in it. And I was pointing to what looked like a marble in the bottom. And I said, what is this? And he said, we don't know what we're eating either. And I thought that was interesting. And I also thought it was very interesting in Japan that I've never heard anybody just chit-chat with the waiter or waitress. And... I asked Akira about that. I said, I never see anybody just chatting with the supermarket cashier or with a waitress. Why don't you ask people about their lives? And he said, because we don't care. <laughs> this is a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's formalized. Yeah, you might not do well there, actually. It's sort of the opposite of how you're used to interacting with people. But just the wide range of Japanese food that and we usually try to go once a year, every winter. We call it Japanuary. We go in January. That's constantly surprising to me. But, you know, if I could only eat one country's food, I would eat Italy's food. I think they dropped the ball on dessert, but I think they wrote the book on dinner. A lot of people would agree with you, I think. I can't eat chocolate. And so a lot of people pity me because I get an insane headache when I eat it. But I haven't eaten in so long, I don't care. But it just makes you realize so many people's idea of dessert is chocolate. Like on the airplane, when they say, we've got chocolate cake and we've got chocolate ice cream. Right. My younger daughter doesn't eat chocolate. She doesn't like it. And everybody's always trying to get her to eat it. Like, it's so great. You should eat it. She's like, leave me alone. Well, I said to somebody, I was signing books years ago, and this a vegan came up, and I said, oh, well, you need to at least eat chicken. And she said, what possible business is it of <laughs> yours, what I eat? And I really heard her, and I thought, oh, my God, you're so right. And so I never say that to people anymore. But that said, I mean, we lived in France for a number of years, and I don't recall a single French house guest who said, I don't eat blank. And we had a dinner guest in Paris one night. We had two Americans and one was a vegan and the other one was a vegetarian and she couldn't eat wheat. You know, like, what are you supposed to do? I cook for people, you know, 50 years. I've cooked for people who've come over and it is getting harder and harder. You have to ask everybody. It's not polite to not ask. And you sort of expect that people are going to tell you they're not going to sacrifice what their allergies are or what their principles are because you're cooking for them. And it just becomes increasingly this kind of lowest common denominator cooking. Like, what can I make that's not going to trigger an allergy attack, offend this person, et cetera, et cetera. It gets, it's a tightrope a little bit. Well, when I moved to France, because I didn't eat chocolate, I thought, okay, I can't add to that list. Right? So we went to somebody's house for dinner one night, and she served liver. And I just always thought liver was gross. And I thought, well, I can't not eat it. And it was fantastic. Oh, and just the door to liver opened. And it wouldn't have opened if I'd been able to say, well, I don't, you know, I don't remember liking it when I was six. 
But that's the other thing is having a food preference is not the same thing as having an allergy or having a special diet or whatever. So you, there is this kind of like, well, someone's inviting you for dinner. It's not up to you to tell people what, tell that person what you like. It's fine if you have an allergy or some kind of diet. But if you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't really like chicken or I don't really like broccoli, whatever. Like it wasn't until I moved to France that I started eating horse. And horse is fantastic. And it's even better in Belgium. And I've had horse in Japan, but it's always been cold. Cold raw? And cut into like pieces the size of dice. I don't remember if it was raw or... I guess you could eat raw horse, right? I mean, I've had horse tartare before, but a lot of people... I've never rode a horse, you know? I mean, this morning I bought a belt that's made out of an alligator, but alligators are mean, okay? So I'm not going to feel... It's either you or the alligator. So it's not like it's either you or the chicken. Right. Right? An alligator can fight back. So I feel pretty okay about this belt. Last question. What did you eat for dinner last night? He was in England, and I've been on tour, and I came home. So I made Tuna fish standing over the sink. No. I made salmon. And then, you know what I love? Baby zucchini. I love them. And they have them at Grace's Marketplace. And so I steamed some of those, and I had this salmon. And then I followed it up with orange jello with oranges in it. Wow. And you made that or you bought that? I made the jello. Yeah. I guess real last question. Let's talk about the sugar free jello thing because I'm kind of fascinated by that. Over COVID, I gained a lot of weight. I don't weigh myself, but my shirts didn't fit and then my jackets didn't fit. So I decided I was going to go on a diet for two months before my tour started. So I cut what I eat in half. But see, I eat an entire chicken in an entire box of spaghetti, right? That's dinner for me. I mean, I eat massive amounts of food. You know, I walk 15, 20 miles a day. I don't know if it was the size of my family, but I always worried that there wasn't going to be enough. And so I would wolf down the first helping and then so I could be first with the seconds. And, you know, if I can have thirds, that's great too. My brother eats the way I do. And I watch him sometimes and I realize, oh my God, that's what I look like. When I go on tour, I eat dinner at the book signing table because otherwise I don't get out of there till one o'clock in the morning and all the restaurants are closed. And I don't like having my picture taken. And so there's a sign up that says no photos, right? And this woman came up to get a book signed a couple of years ago and she said, after watching you eat for 20 minutes, I can see why you have that sign. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so... They make this Jello, and it's ten calories a serving, so it's forty calories a box. And a box of Jello is like two cups, right? A cup of hot water, a cup, a cup of cold water, and that's forty calories. Two crackers is forty calories. No, forty calories is effectively no calories. But you can fill yourself up. Like I have a problem before I go to bed. I think, oh, what's going on in the kitchen? I mean, my boyfriend Hugh doesn't. He just goes to bed. But I'm like, what's going on in there? And I'll just wipe out any leftovers that there were or see what I can pile on top of potato chip. You're a great eater. This is a very impressive. But because I needed to lose weight, I couldn't do it. So I just have, you know, two entire boxes of Jello, And that's 80 calories. It's really four cups of water is what you're doing. Yeah. It filled me up. Well, I don't know how much weight I lost, but my jackets fit me. You know, you're supposed to like be able to make a fist and put it on your chest and close your jacket over it. You're supposed to have that much room in your jacket. 
And they were jackets. They fit me like sausage casings. And now I can put that. I'm going to gain it all back. <laughs> well, yeah. I hadn't worn a sport jacket in a year and a half. And I put one on the other day. And it was like, it was like the button was four inches from the buttonhole. It was a little embarrassing. Anyway, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for this. It was really fun. Oh, thank you, Mark. During the course of the conversation with David, we had, well, I wasn't hilarious. He said some hilarious things about Jell-O and his fondness for it. I told him that it's probably not worth making Jell-O from scratch, which I think he agrees with. But I'll tell you, a gelatin-based dessert that is worth making from scratch, and that's panna cotta. Might be a little ambitious for some people. There are a couple steps here, but if you can start with good cream, this is one of the best desserts there is. So, as I said, start with getting good cream, three cups, heavy cream, or if you can only get less, use a mixture of heavy cream and half and half. But this and a little vanilla and sugar are the only flavorings here. So the better the cream, the better the dessert. Take four ramekins and very, very lightly grease them with a towel and a tiny bit of oil. Just grease them a bit. Put one cup of the cream in a medium saucepan, no heat, and sprinkle an envelope of gelatin, about two teaspoons of unflavored gelatin, over the top of that. Let it sit for five minutes and it will soften, and then turn the heat under the saucepan to very low and whisk until the gelatin dissolves completely, until the mixture is translucent. That'll take about three minutes, maybe five at the most. Meanwhile, cut a vanilla bean in half lengthwise and scrape out the seeds with the point of a small paring knife. Add both the seeds and the pod to the cream, along with a half cup of sugar and two more cups of cream. As I said, if you don't have that much cream, use some half and half to make up the difference. But again, better cream is going to make this dessert, this panna cotta, much better. Increase the heat to medium and stir until the sugar is dissolved and a little bit of steam starts rising from the pot just until then, another three or five minutes. If you don't have a vanilla bean, you can do this and then add a teaspoon of vanilla extract afterwards. Let the mixture, the cream mixture, which is going to be your panna cotta, cool in the pan for a few minutes. Then remove the vanilla bean with the tongs or whatever and pour the panna cotta into the custard cups. Chill that until it's set at least four hours or up to a day and then serve in the cups or you can run a thin knife along their edge and plate them with some berries. That's really great, but without anything, it's one of the most beautiful and amazing desserts in the world. Enjoy that. Okay, it is time for a little audience participation. You can call our question and answer hotline with any question about food at 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. Be sure to leave us a way to get back to you. Hi, Mark Gale. Welcome to Food. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. I hear you have an um, unusual circumstance and a question. I do. And I hope it's unusual, at least for my sake. We discovered an ant infestation in my spice and baking uh, supplies yeah. cabinet. And so I had to throw away just about everything. Like the ants got into the food. They weren't just on the shelves. They were in everything. They were just real close to the lids. And I just didn't feel great about it. So 
we've basically scrapped the entire spice cabinet and all the baking stuff as well. And so as I rebuild my collection, the opportunity to start from scratch, I would love your thoughts on what are like three spices or seasonings that that I should make sure are in the new and improved and vermin-free cabinet. Well, let's go back to the problem before we get to that. How many ants would you say there were? There's a window next to the cabinet and they just made a little trail. And so they're probably like a hundred. And so we've cleared it out, cleaned it up, set some traps, and it looks like we're in the clear, but it was not an isolated ant. Okay, moving on to the spice question. What type of food do you cook most often? I tend to start most of my recipes with a base of like olive oil, butter, garlic, and salt. Well, I wasn't going to suggest garlic powder, so that's good. Yeah, I would say I lean towards like a Italian or a sort of, you know, New Orleans Frenchy style. But, you know, but I, I also do some Asian cooking as well. Well, you know, I don't see how you can live without some form of ground chilies unless you have a great source for fresh chilies all the time. So you can go with a, a milder Urfa chili kind of thing, but Middle Eastern ground chilies tend to be milder. New Mexican ground chilies tend to be milder, or you can go with cayenne. But especially if you're cooking New Orleans food, you're going to want some source of heat. I don't like heat myself all that much, so I tend to rely on pimenton, smoked paprika from Spain, because that has a little bit of heat and it has this smokiness that makes it so you cook with less bacon than you used to cook with. I cook with less bacon than I used to cook with. So I think that's one. I mean, really, you're just asking me what my favorites are. I couldn't live without cumin. I don't think I use cumin every day, but I bet I use it four or five times a week. I really, really love it. I mean... The thing is that I, I don't cook with spices at every meal. I cook with olive oil and garlic and onion and a lot of aromatic vegetables. And, and so I don't always add spices. But when I do, I'm thinking chili or pimenton, cumin. This is a bit of an outlier and I use it less, but I don't think I could live without cinnamon either. And, and it's like, you know, I'm not even using that. Maybe I probably, maybe I use it once a week. But having said all of that, you're only going to buy three spices once, then you're going to buy three more, then you're going to buy three more. I mean, I think the problem for most of us is what about these things that we buy that lie there for five years and you think, oh, when am I going to actually use that? So I think the idea of prioritizing is really a good one. And, you know, I think if you want to go to five or 10 and after that you think, well, you want cardamom, you want coriander, you might want dry ginger because it's hard to keep that around. I personally love to have saffron around, and if you buy it by the ounce, it lasts forever and isn't all that expensive. Well, others can add to the list. We do not have, or we did not have until the other day, dried oregano, dried marjoram, dried any of the sort of green herb things in our spice cabinet, but we wanted to make zatar, so... We had to buy some dried spices. I think dried oregano is actually, especially if you can get good dried oregano, it's worth having. Marjoram too, I guess. Anyway, just to get you started, what were you thinking? I'm curious. I put bay leaf on the list immediately. I don't love thyme, but a lot of recipes call for it. So Yeah, I don't have dried thyme in the cabinet. I use fresh thyme in the summer, and I guess I buy, you know, if you buy so-called fresh thyme on sprigs, 
even in the winter, it lasts forever. And then I like celery salt because I also like it on the edge of a Bloody Mary. So serves a dual purpose. <laughs> well, yeah, that's important. It's important to make your drink spices readily available. Okay, well, good luck with the ants. Hopefully no other pests will follow. And great to see you and nice to talk with you. Nice to see you as well. Thank you so much for answering my question. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Again, you can call us with any question you like about food, and we will get back to you and maybe have you on the show. The number is 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. I hope you had fun with this episode. I certainly did. Thank you to the prolific banterer, David Sedaris, for coming on the show. We could have gone on forever, but I was trying to be respectful of his time. You can follow him on Instagram at David Sedaris Books. That's D-A-V-I-D-S-E-D-A-R-I-S-B-O-O-K-S. And on Facebook at David Sedaris. His new book, A Carnival of Snackery, is out tomorrow, October 5th. It's really hilarious. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank Mark Hale also. Thanks to Kate Bittman for putting together a great show. Folks, if you like today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at BittmanProject.com or at markbitman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food.